Well, traditionally, at Easter, the worship leader will sing out or yell out, He is risen, and the congregation will respond, He is risen indeed. So let's give it a whirl here, even though we're kind of a young, contemporary church. Let's join in with the history of the church. He is risen. Exciting day. Very glad to have you here today. I want to let you get to know me a bit. My name is Chuck Breyer, and uh, I am the fifth of six children born to John and Carol Ryer. And if you did not know, you might figure it out at some point, I'm the only boy with five sisters. That had a tremendous impact on my emotional development. Up until puberty, I cried a lot, and then I realized you get beat up when you do that when you're a boy in, in teen years, so you kind of stop doing that. Teen years came with no influence whatsoever. My dad was a hardworking man, but with all those kids, he was working all the time. So I was sort of trying to figure out what it meant to be a boy on my own with no older brother to point the direction I should go. And so one of the ways that I started coming out Uh, on my own, so to speak, is to create some space between my sisters and I in the music department. Now, uh, they listened to all kinds of Motown and all sorts of music that I really enjoyed. But on my 13th birthday, I got my first album, and it changed my life. It was Van Halen 1. Now, Van Halen 1, for me, was a life-changing moment. It featured the guitar stylings of one Edward Van Halen. Perhaps you know who Edward is. You have a connection to him, as a matter of fact. You say, how? I say, Edward Van Halen grew up two miles from where you sit right this minute. Edward Van Halen formed his first band with his little brother Alex at a middle school right down the street, Hamilton Elementary School, a mile from here. Uh, Edward Van Halen met David Lee Roth and formed the basis for what would become the group Van Halen at Pasadena City College. This happened in our neighborhood. Oh, mind you, close to 40 years ago, but a long time ago, the rock world was changed because a a guy who played differently than anybody else had ever played began to introduce the world to his particular method of music. And in in my case, it was a paradigm-shifting moment because... I was no longer bebopping around my house. I was rocking it out. I was the only guy in my house at that moment who listened to heavy metal and listened to it loudly, much to my parents' chagrin. It was a life-changing moment for me and and, and for the rock world. And you know, it kind of sounds cliche, but frankly, every now and again, somebody gets introduced into your world and it literally, in my case, rocks your world somebody gets brought into the experience you have and it changes the course of your life. It changes some direction, some trajectory for you. And most certainly, this is the case with the person of Jesus Christ. You'd expect me to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are celebrating Easter. If you're not a church-going folk or you haven't been to church in a while, well, what you can know is that Easter is the celebration, the traditional celebration of Christians and their belief that the person, the historical figure, Jesus Christ, literally and bodily came back to life. 
Now, I realize for many, this sounds silly. And if it's not true, it is silly. And this is the testimony of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would say as much. If Jesus didn't come back from the dead, Christians should be pitied more than anyone else. Why? Because we just spent the better part of the last half hour singing songs to a dead guy who can't hear them. You say, well, that's really kind of startling. You know, this isn't what I expected from my Easter message. Eddie Van Halen and messages about Jesus not being alive. So settle down. We'll get to it. I, I have a point this morning, and you'll enjoy it, I hope. The gospel, the good news that the Christians of the first century and the Christians in the 20th century sense have been proclaiming is that if this Jesus is in fact alive, it's a paradigm shifter. In the parlance of the March Madness basketball tournament, it's a game changer. If he is alive, everything's different. Nothing will ever be the same. This notion of a, a bodily resurrection, somebody who would be in a grave and then come back to life, this was not something that was fashionable in the first century. In fact, uh, scholar N.T. Wright would say he has taught at Oxford and is considered one of the New Testament, the preeminent New Testament scholars in the world. He would say, after studying history at great length, what you discover is that the notion of the first century and their belief about bodily resurrection is they thought it was nauseating. The idea that flesh was bad and spirit was good and anybody, as Wright would say, in Greco-Roman thinking, the soul or spirit was good and the physical and material world was weak and corrupt and defiling. And in that worldview, resurrection was not only impossible, but it was undesirable. <laughs> no soul having gotten free from its body, would ever want it back. So the, these uneducated fishermen come along and they start talking about this guy who said he was God and said, come, follow me, that he came back to life and they saw him. And like somebody might today, people thought they were off their rockers. So while the resurrection was good news for believers because it said our Savior is alive, it was somewhat irritating to the culture around them, as often it can be today. But this good news, this gospel, and that's what the word gospel means, is just good news. This good news that Jesus is alive changed two really important things that we see in our text today that earlier Scott read from Acts chapter 4. And I want to just point out these two ways that Jesus kind of got pushed into the conversation and has radically reshaped the way the world thinks. And the first is this, the gospel changed religious discussion. Now, if you'll read in this passage, you'll see in verse 1, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So you see, into this culture gets introduced this notion of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, 
and it disturbs. It literally says they were greatly disturbed because the people were believing what they thought to be a silly deception. And it had particularly bad ramifications for some of the religious peoples of the day. Amongst those religious peoples, Jesus' supposed resurrection would have brought them into a critical decision-making point. They would have to have said, what am I going to do with this? And all of us know that if we're kind of lazing around in life in some way, there's nothing more irritating than somebody forcing us to make a decision about something we don't want to make a decision about. The group of people referred to as the Sadducees was, was a sect of the, of the Jewish Sanhedrin that did not believe in the afterlife. And so you can see how if Jesus really came back from the dead, it was going to require them to shift the way they feel and think about things. It was going to require change in them. And change irritates most of us. Now, some of us kind of get a jolly out of bouncing from place to place to place, but most people kind of like things the way they've always liked them. I frankly go to the same restaurants all the time. In Florida, it was worse. I had two I went to all the time. One was called Sonny's Barbecue, and I lived there because it was cheap. And because I knew what I was getting, there was no change. Every time I went there, it was the same meat, the same bread, the same sweet tea, there, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't variation. I didn't want to go to one of the trendy, cool, cool beans cafe and try some trout almondine with on top. I just didn't really even want to experiment with it. I, I want what I want. I want what I know to be true. Give me my beans and my pork and my garlic toast. That's what I want. Now, you say, well, I'm not like that. I love going out and trying all the artsy places. Congratulations. But I bet there are times in your world where when things get shifted, you hate it. See, and if somebody comes along to you and says, listen, I want to challenge a political idea you have. You're really committed to your guns. You're from the South. And somebody comes along and introduces the idea to you that we should have gun control. And I'm not going to go off on this topic today, so relax if you're a conservative from the South. I'm just saying... If that happens, you know automatically inside you something, some impulse goes, I hate paradigmatic change. I hate it when people challenge my thinking. This is what's going on. These uneducated guys coming into the mix and saying, this guy's alive. These Sadducees who didn't believe in the afterlife are PO'd. It is irritating to them. In our day, the notion of the afterlife is a question that gets answered only after a couple other questions get answered. In other words, you can sit around and talk to the average person who doesn't believe in Jesus, and they're first going to want to know, does God even exist? And then the second thing they're going to want to know is, does Jesus even exist? Which is an increasingly popular, albeit erroneous, notion that we've somehow or another been misled over the course of history to believe that Jesus Christ, the historical figure, even lived in the first place. And I have to point out that even the greatest critics of New Testament reliability find that kind of thinking odd. Bart Ehrman is the author of Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. He is the professor of religion at the University of North Carolina and no huge fan of the evangelical church or New Testament reliability at all. But he says this, one may well choose to resonate with the concerns of our modern and postmodern cultural despisers of established religion, or not. 
But surely the best way to promote any such agenda is not to deny what virtually every sane historian on the planet, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, pagan, agnostic, atheist, what have you, has come to conclude based on a range of compelling historical evidence, whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. So the first starting point, did Jesus exist? There's virtually no historical evidence that he did not exist, and there is a preponderance of evidence from people who can't stand religious Christians who would say, listen, that's just silly. That's like wondering whether or not oxygen exists. Of course Jesus existed. But the, the more important discussion becomes, did he really come back to life? And if he didn't, again, I set you free to enjoy the rest of your day. If he isn't alive, I completely understand why you would go, what a silly notion. What a silly bunch of religious freaky people. I get that. If you're somebody who has significant doubts about whether or not Jesus actually came back to life, I would say, I understand. And if he isn't alive, then this is all sort of a waste of our gargantuan, a gargantuan waste of our time. But I would ask you to consider that if he is alive, what that means for you and for me and how that significantly changes the dynamic. It, it introduces something that may, in fact, change the paradigm of your life. If he is alive, then as John said so wonderfully earlier in our service, then what he said about afterlife is true. What he said about fixing the evils and ills of this world eventually is true. What he said about the possibility for forgiveness for all of us is true. What he said about his sovereign capacity to oversee even the most difficult situations in our life is true. Assuming Jesus is alive, then a person would logically be expected to decide whether or not they will follow him. And in some, some theological circles, there are people who would claim to be Christians and say, well, I think Jesus was a good guy, but he isn't alive. Then I would challenge you and ask that person, why would you worship or follow a dead guy? If he is who his resurrection would suggest, you really can't be idle about it. Tim Keller, who wrote the New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God, which if you are somebody who's digging through difficult, challenging questions about the faith, you're probably not going to get them answered in a 30-minute sermon at a little church on Hill Avenue in Pasadena. I would really commend to you this book, The Reason for God by Tim Keller. He says this, Jesus demands a radical response of some kind. You could denounce him for being evil, or you may flee from him because he's a lunatic, or you can fall down and worship him for being God. All of those reactions make sense. They are consistent with the reality of his words. But what you can't do is respond moderately. You must not say to him, nice teaching, very helpful. You're a fine thinker. He really hasn't given you that option. Neither have his followers. If he's alive, then they said in verse 12 of Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. A radical introduction of a concept. This is one of the biggest hang-ups amongst those who discuss religion. Their offense taken 
at the Christian notion, the orthodox Christian notion that Jesus would be the only means of salvation, this text indicates that Jesus' followers, the ones who saw him resurrected from the dead, came to this very conclusion. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to which, to men by which we must be saved. The name Jesus, according to John Piper, is the focus of faith and repentance. In order to believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you must believe on his name. That is, you must have heard of him and know who he is as a particular man who did a particular saving work and rose from the dead. Now, think about it for just a minute. I, I, and, I, and I really, I'm going to try something, and this is always frightening, particularly if you're worried about me as a person. This is, and that is, if Jesus came back to life, it verifies his claims of deity, and he only makes sense that he isn't pointing the way to God, that he's actually God. If he came back from the dead, he's not saying, I'm going to give you one of a myriad of paths how you can find the divine. He's saying, I am the divine. My name is Chuck Ryer. Now, it's spelled R-Y-O-R, and I can verify, and you can too. Test me. I trust you. Go on Google. Go on Bing. Go on the Internet and Google Chuck R-Y-O-R. I guarantee you there is not another Chuck Ryer, as far as I know, in the world as it's spelled like that. Now, there are two reasons for that. One is my last name, R-Y-O-R, is a unique spelling that my great-grandfather decided to change the spelling of our name when our family emigrated from, from Germany. It used to be R-E-I-H-E-R, and so people did not pronounce it Ryer. They were like Rear, Rrr. And so great-grandpa Rear decided, we're going to change the spelling of this to make it a little easier, R-Y-O-R. And, you know, after many, many years of school, I can tell you, great-grandpa really didn't have his hands on this thing very well because it's been mispronounced everywhere I've gone. People are still butchering it to death. Rear, Royer, Ryer, Pryor. Where'd you get the P? It's like, what, a silent P? I mean, what, what in the world did you come up with that? So that's one reason is, is that it's a completely unique spelling to my name, so you won't find. But the other thing is, is the name Chuck. Nobody names their kids Chuck anymore. Now, back in the day, Charles was the name to have. And then a couple things came along. Ricky Lee Jones in the 70s saying Chucky's in love. That stupid demonic little doll started star uh, starring in films. <laughs> and then Prince Charles started cheating on Diana. And so pretty much in every realm, fantasy and reality, Charles ceased to become one of those names you want to name your kids. I was a youth minister. I had a huge youth ministry in Florida. And I've been waiting around. As I look on the internet, these youngsters having their babies, I'm waiting, who's going to name their child after their beloved youth pastor? This one is Chuck, named after not a single one. They're naming them funky Old Testament names before they come after Chuck. Hi, this is my son, Obadiah. Really? That's preferable to Chuck? Now, this is my point. If I say to you, hey, Carolyn and I live at 2700 Briar Summit in Duarte. That's where I live. That's where I'll be. If you want to hang out with Chuck Ryer, that's where he's going to be. I'm not pointing the way to any number of Chuck Ryers. I'm saying I am Chuck Ryer, and you can come hang out with me. I'm not one of a series of voices trying to point you to the eternal Chuck Ryer in the sky. 
I'm not trying to get others to think that there are multiple Chuck Ryers, aren't there? Isn't it possible that there could be somebody named Chuck Ryer in Germany right as we speak? Yes, but I'm telling you that if you want to be with me, I am Chuck. And Jesus is really saying, not here are a myriad of ways that you can get to the creator. He's saying, and if he's not alive, he's not. But if he is alive, I think he is. He's saying, I am God. You don't have to look for him elsewhere. This is not a North American concept, arrogantly presupposed onto you. This is something that was born in the Middle East. We are graciously the product of missionaries who came hundreds of years ago. We come and we hear about a savior named Jesus who was resurrected from the dead 2,000 years ago in Palestine. He was Jewish. Now, if you've got a problem with the Jews, that's your problem. Jesus was Jewish. Cope with it. If you've got a problem with Middle Eastern culture and you think it's ethnocentric for them to presuppose that their view of God would be the real view of the triune, real God, I'm sorry, I don't have any really good answers for you other than to say, Jesus came back from the dead to prove he was who he said he was. The gospel, the good news of his resurrection radically changed religious discussion. The thing I think is really fascinating, though, more telling than anything else, is that the gospel radically changed regular people. And this is my second and final point this morning. In verse 8 of our text, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. What's truly remarkable about the fact that Peter was making this proclamation, as it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, which we'll get to in just a minute, is that this is the same coward that went running weeks earlier when his Savior was living. And they were taking Jesus to the cross. This was not somebody who was bucking up at the time and saying, that's right, I have enough moxie to stand here with Jesus and tell you I'm tough. I believe this cult leader so much that I'm willing to die with him. This is a guy who was chicken-hearted at nature, by nature. He and the rest of his buddies, gone. So what happens? Weeks, months later, these guys are out in public saying, I believe this really happened. And go ahead and throw me in jail. You know, Peter eventually got his head, he was crucified upside down in Rome. John, the other one spoken in this passage, was exiled to the island of Patmos and was boiled in oil. These were not people that said, you know, I'm going to build a little lie, a little cult following so that I can have a nice little kingdom, build a nice little compound, have people come in and feed me and have a harem of women. These were people that were radically committed to following the teachings of Jesus because they saw Jesus was alive. It radically changed somebody from a coward into somebody who was a powerful proclaimer of the truth of God's world. The, ra- the reality of the, of the resurrection made a substantial change in Peter and John. 
Now, one of the things, one of the common objections to the notion of the resurrection is they would look at the history of Christianity and they would say, it makes complete sense to me that in order to keep their little cult alive, they would manufacture this lie about Jesus coming back from the dead. And I can totally understand why that would seem like a really reasonable process of thinking, except for the fact that they weren't setting up a little notion of easy living for themselves. As well, while there have been cult leaders who convinced others to kill themselves or die for the cause, in the history of cult living, in all of the research I have done to say, how does this work in these places where these cults, and in California it's like cult central in the history of America, what happens? The cult leader's always the last one to die. Drink the Kool-Aid. Put on your keds and get in bed or whatever that crazy loony guy did here several years ago. He's always the last one to go, and it's amazing. Always a he, but we won't go there today either. I'm just telling you, if these guys made this up, they're the dumbest people alive because they manufactured their own lie and then were willing to die for it. Now, I believe that this were possible except for they knew they were lying And all 11 of the 12 that were remaining after Judas hung himself, all 11 died martyrs' deaths. It's unthinkable that these people would actually say, you know what, let's concoct a lie. A lie that will not give us a grand kingdom and big homes and flashy cars like the televangelists of today. No, they concocted, supposedly, this lie that was going to lead to their deaths that was going to lead to radical self-sacrifice for others and ultimately for the message of the cross. Who does that? I mean, if I'm going to create a cult, it's going to be the cult of Chuck. I'm going to have lots of creature comforts, lots. And I'm certainly, if my head is going to get put on a block and they go, okay, we're going to kill you if you don't recant. If I know I'm lying, I'm singing like a canary because living is what it's all about. I'm not going to go to the death having created my own lie so that I can be thought of well after I'm dead by the people who are left alive. No, the, the, the Christians, the early Christians claimed not just one, but a bunch of them claimed that they saw Jesus alive. These uneducated men changed the world Some have seen this as evidence of the simple nature of religious faith. In Acts 4.13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They were uneducated. But as opposed to what some critics, like, again, our friend Bart Ehrman, who would have said, it seems unlikely that these uneducated, low-class, illiterate disciples played some kind of decisive role in the literary compositions that have come down through history under their names. He seems to think that it means if you're you're uneducated, you're illiterate. That's not true. They could read and write. They just weren't highly schooled in religion and philosophy. There was a simple creed they lived by. This guy we knew named Jesus who was really like cool and radical, he died, we watched it, we ran like crazy, and then he came back to life and we saw him And so now we're here to tell you he's alive. He's alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul said, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not were, many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Let me say bluntly that this is going to be and is what keeps people from publicly identifying as Christians and may keep people from privately identifying as Christians. We don't like to be seen as weak and fragile and broken. Even the most devoted believer has at their very nature a desire to be loved, worshipped, honored by others. And so the idea that we would willingly put ourselves in a place of saying we need forgiveness is really running against the cultural stream in which all of us are swimming. The idea that we would say we are weak, we are broken, we are fallen, we need forgiveness doesn't feel good in a world that's trying to tell you you have it all, all you have to do is be the person you are supposed to be, the power is within, run with it. The gospel was the power isn't within us, not until God comes to live in us. Not until we receive the forgiveness that is offered to us. And this is the beauty and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. This promise of forgiveness. Jesus can't forgive you if he's not God. He can't even offer forgiveness from God if he's not God. And he certainly can't do it if he's dead. So the idea that we'd listen to somebody who would say, you know what, confess your sins and you'll be forgiven. No one will judge you. As he said to the woman caught in adultery, who has condemned you? Then neither do I. Jesus doesn't have the right to make that kind of pronouncement. He doesn't have the right to tell you and I we're, not forgi we're forgiven for our sins. The truth be told, if we want to know for certain that we're forgiven, we have to look to the risen Christ. That's our hope. It is basketball season, and I love basketball. And recently I watched an HBO special on Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. It's an older documentary, and, uh, and if you grew up in my era, you'll understand how wonderful an era it was to see these two men literally change the game of basketball, particularly at the professional level. See, when I was a kid in the 70s, my Washington Bullets won the NBA championship, and we couldn't watch the game live. It was tape delayed. This is unthinkable. This was game seven. We had to wait. They didn't have primetime NBA. They didn't have 17,000 sports channels. Nothing. In fact, the NBA was really struggling. Attendance was down. The players were, you know, wealthy by the standard of that day, but... Compared to today's players, nothing. And they had rampant drug problems. They're coming out of the 60s and the 70s, and there's all kinds of political turmoil. The condition of the NBA in the late 70s was bad, and then these two young guys faced off against one another in the NCAA championship in 1979. Magic Johnson for Michigan State, Larry Bird for Indiana State. And then they went into the NBA together, and shared back and forth championship seasons between Boston and Los Angeles. And either one or both of those teams were on television every week. And all of a sudden now, 
basketball is the center of the sports universe. All of a sudden now, players' salaries are through the roofs. But the game-changing, the paradigm-changing component of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird was not simply that they were these really charismatic stars coming along at just the right time and the advent of cable television and satellite television. What was amazing, and, and actually Irvin Johnson, Irvin Magic Johnson said as much in this documentary. He said, the two of us made it fashionable to pass again. See, up to that point, it was just scorers and the dunkers. These two guys did the most amazing thing, passing the ball to other players. It was all of a sudden cool as a kid to be the guy who threw the behind-the-back pass or found the person who was not open, and all of a sudden they were open or could throw an alley-oop to somebody. These two guys were not just scorers. They were guys who built up their team. They were the ultimate servants because they had huge assist totals. All of a sudden, being the person who set others up to score, well, that was cool. This was fashionable. This is the really, really radical thing about Christianity. It's that what Jesus has called followers, those who would believe that he has been resurrected from the dead, who believe that there's forgiveness associated with following and, and knowing him, the really radical notion, friend, is that he set the example that it is now the priority of God that we would serve one another. The only way that's possible is if you can really embrace the notion that Jesus has served you. Perhaps you've been reluctant to humble yourself. You're a, a believer who hadn't been to church in a while, or you're somebody who says, you know, I was raised in church, but I didn't really ever say to Christ, you are my everything, my life. I'm going to follow you, the risen Christ. And today, you may say, I really want and need to do that. You may be a skeptic who has some serious questions, and you need to spend some more time thinking about it. But I would challenge both believer and skeptic alike that it is the reality of Jesus' resurrection. It is the reality of who that would make him if it be true that changes the way we look at the world. All of a sudden now, the promise is that we can know the joy of God's presence in our life, and we can make that known to others too by virtue of serving them as Jesus served them. Jesus said in James chapter 5, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Each week at prison, we celebrate communion. And communion is merely a physical picture of what Jesus did for you and I. His body was broken so that yours wouldn't have to be if you were his child. His blood, which is pictured in the fruit of the vine, grape juice or wine or whatever church you go to uses. These is to, just to draw a picture of the justice of God satisfied. You don't have to be afraid of God anymore. Jesus took the hit for you. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You need no longer be afraid of God, even if you feel like you've blown it and you, you don't feel like you measure up. Well, welcome. You don't. I don't either. Jesus does, though. And when we come into his presence through this sacrament, we're saying very publicly, the only way that I am okay with God is by virtue of what Jesus has done. To come forward at a church and say, I'm going to participate in this rite, 
this bread, this wine. I'm going to participate in this. What you are effectively saying is the only means for me to know forgiveness before God is through Jesus Christ, and I'm going to trust in him. And so I want to pray with you this morning that if you'd like to come into his presence, if you'd like to engage with him again, if you'd like to maybe meet him for the first time, I'd like to give you a chance to pray to do that this morning before we come to the Lord's table together and celebrate the resurrected Christ through communion. So let us pray. Our Father, today we celebrate the resurrection of...